at God's Word in John chapter 14, and we will finish this chapter up, Lord willing, this week, and begin in 15 next week. To note the phrase there, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This chapter ends with this enigmatic phrase, rise, let us go from here. Some commentators have a tough time with this because Jesus will continue for three more chapters, at least John records, of instruction. And it's sort of like a preacher saying, well, I've got one more thing to say <laughs> and then another thing. I understand that perfectly. There's an urgency there in the rising from the table, the instructions that they had received. This is on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. He must teach his disciples critical lessons, and they demand their attention as they <clears throat> sense this departing, as they rise, demands our attention too. Jesus has said he is going away. Verse 2 in this chapter. Initially he says, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. He reassures his disciples, though, he is going away and he will prepare a place for them. <clears throat> he is not going to leave them alone. Verse 18. And I mentioned that last time. He's not going to leave them alone, abandon them like orphans. It isn't just that he's coming back for them, but he's not going to leave them alone. He will send another of the same kind, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Loneliness is a tough thing. And I haven't thought about it much because I'm not alone very much. <clears throat> Perhaps why I don't think of it often, and the times that I am, it's kind of good to get away <laughs> from things, because otherwise there's so much going on, and getting some time alone is good. However, great lengthy times of loneliness or isolation or at least the seeming abandonment can be incredibly difficult. And I think this has been the, one of the most difficult things for many during this time of the quote-unquote pandemic worldwide is that there is also a pandemic of loneliness and too much time alone and isolated. <coughs> we have members of our congregation even now who are undergoing serious times of critical illness in which they're being isolated and that's not helpful, actually, in the recovery. We try to contact them the best we can. I was reading an article in the Hartford Health Care <laughs> Report, <coughs> in any case, and it talks about this current pandemic we're going through. It says it, it pushes people further from others, leaving many downright lonely, it would say. And if the situation doesn't feel temporary, there's a feeling in many, because of the length and duration of it, a chronic loneliness, if you will. And this has devastating effect on the mind and the body. 
This article will go on to state, and I think this is the way God has created human beings, indeed, that we are social beings and we need to have connections with others. In fact, this physician notes here that it has, loneliness has great physical and emotional impact. And they noted this, it, it affects your stress level, alters brain function, increases heart problems and stroke risk, triggers depression and suicide, causes poor decision making, decreases memory and can spur on the progression of Alzheimer's disease and leads to substance abuse. I'd also mention myself that being alone and experiencing loneliness it also impairs your natural immune system. It is critical to understand then and now that those that are in Christ are never alone. That's Jesus' message. He isn't going to leave you alone. The promise at the beginning in Matthew, the virgin will bear a son, and they will call his name what? God with us. Not alone, but God with us, with his people. And then at the very end of the same gospel of Matthew, Jesus commissions his disciples to observe all that he has commanded, and then he says what at the very end? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. For those that are in Christ, you're never alone. You're never isolated. You're not an orphan. He has sent the Holy Spirit, God, with us to dwell with his people so that they would not be alone. This is the advocate the helper, the intercession, the same essence, if you will. God, Emmanuel, God with us. The spirit of truth dwell with us forever. One who will bring to the remembrance and teach all that Christ has taught. Verse 26 of chapter 14. Jesus will explain a couple chapters later Chapter 16, verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is actually to your advantage that I leave. I'm not going to leave you alone as orphans, but it's advantage for you that I go away because if I don't go away, the advocate, the helper, will not come to you. But if I go, he will come. Jesus was with them. He was going away. He even rose to the table at this point in our lesson but they were not going to be alone. He would send another of the same kind, another advocate, another intercessor, the very spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of God. The disciples are going to wrestle with great trouble. They're going to be in conflict. So this section in chapter 14 ends as it began with Christ making this statement. 
let not your heart be troubled, verse 27, neither let it be afraid. They'll feel alone. Christ will be gone, but they will not be abandoned. The first time he mentioned, don't let your heart be troubled because I'm doing something purposeful. I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare this, a place for you. This time he says this to encourage them to reflect on the fact that he is not going to leave them abandoned. He will give them gifts to help them in the times in which they will live. The very conflict and troubling times, the turbulent times, he is going to enable them and remind them of three parting gifts that he gives to them. Three parting gifts to help them triumph over whatever circumstance they might find themselves in. He will give them great gifts, the peace of Christ, the perfection of Christ, and I'll elaborate on that a bit. How would that be a great gift? You understand the peace of Christ, but how about the perfection of Christ? It is great. And then finally, the protection that Christ provides. Notice that in our text, beginning, I'll look at verse 27 and go to verse 31. As Jesus rises up, he'll say this, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let us pray. <coughs> Father, indeed, I pray for myself and your people that we would remember and realize the gifts that Christ has given to his beloved. And may they satisfy us even in troubling days. That we indeed would not be afraid, but experience great joy, peace, faith, and love in Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. This phrase here, and I'll repeat it a few times, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And the answer of how that can actually work out in your life is simply this, recognize that Christ, Jesus Christ, has granted you peace. Notice verse 27. The opposite of a time of trouble, the opposite of a time of fear, is great peace, calmness, confidence in Christ. Verse 27, he says, I leave it with you. <coughs> peace mentioned here 
Irene in the Greek, Hebrew shalom. Perhaps you've heard of it. It was a term that was often used as a customary both greeting and farewell. But the, the word itself can also provide something meaningful, not just an expression in a perfunctory sense. Jesus uses this term and this phrase to his disciples on a number of times to calm their fears, particularly after his post-resurrection appearances. I'll just read from you for you in chapter 20, verse 19. It's the first day of the week, that is the Lord's day, and Jesus appears to his disciples. The disciples were gathered in an upper room. They were fearful, the text would say in chapter 20 and verse 19. They were afraid of the Jews, understandably. They just killed Jesus. So now they're gathered together and they are fearful. And then all of a sudden Jesus stands in the midst of them and what does he say? Peace be with you. In chapter, in the verse 21, he says this same phrase again. Peace be with you. 26 of the same chapter. It's eight days later. And Thomas is with them back in this upper room. And Jesus comes and stands in the midst of them and says this, peace be with you. This is the profound peace, a peace that is given by Christ to his disciples. Now, I think when he makes this expression to them, for them to have peace, and, and the fact that he leaves peace here in the context of John 14, I don't think he's addressing the idea of peace with God, although they would have that, because they're regenerate. They're justified by faith, as Paul would say, and therefore have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The natural state of humanity is the lack of peace and an enmity with God. And through the justification of Christ, he gives us peace with God. But I don't think this emphasis here the peace I leave with you is necessarily an emphasis on the aspect of our relationship with God, that is our salvation. But it is rather a strengthening of the faith in the midst of great troubling times. Notice verse 27, it says, I give you this peace and it's connected with what? Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's a great time of trouble. The giving of this peace is intended to change their heart, if you will, or their mind, so the disciples then wouldn't be troubled or afraid. They would stand in Christ with a, a degree of peace into which they could have, as Paul would describe to his protege Timothy, a sound mind, a mind that is not frantic, out of control, troubled, or afraid in that sense. He would tell, Paul would tell the church at Corinth in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that we, that is those that are in Christ, have this mind, the mind of Christ. He would tell the church of Colossae, in 3.15 of that book, 
to allow the peace of Christ to rule your heart. The heart he's speaking of here is your mind, your thoughts. Allow Christ, the peace of Christ, to rule your mind. What does this peace of Christ look like? And here I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 5. The peace that Christ is giving is to provide sanity in an insane world. Paul will begin to the church at Philippi in verse 5 of chapter 4 that let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That is, you have a sound mind. How do those in Christ have a sound mind? They recognize that the, the Lord is at hand. He's always at hand. He's promised that he's not going to leave you, that he's not going to forsake you, not leave you as orphans. The Lord is at hand and always at hand. And at any moment he could come. This is the state of those that are in Christ. So, verse 6 then, you can do not be anxious about anything. Now, there are many things to be anxious about. And when anxiety or fears and trouble overwhelm your mind, for those that are in Christ, it is a recognition that the Lord is at hand. He's always at hand. You're never alone. Instead, respond this way. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How could you have thanksgiving? Because all that Christ has already accomplished. Prayer is not wishful thinking. It is recognizing who indeed God is. That he is faithful. And that he is just. And so what is the response then when we bring this to our remembrance in our mind? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's how you can have peace in times of great trouble, in times of great loneliness, anxiety. It is the peace that Christ has granted to us. And I just will need to read on. I love this phraseology way it's put together. Finally, brethren, whatever is, is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. It's motivated me not to watch so much television these days. Not a lot of lovely going on there. Not a lot of pure going on there, or commendable, or even excellent. Think on these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And note here, verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. The battle is often won or lost in the mind of the believer. The disciple of Christ has the gift of peace, not just with God in the reconciliation of our sin, for sure, but the comfort 
and the peace that Christ grants to all those that are in Christ Jesus. Back to our text, Jesus would say that it is my peace, and it's given to you, but note here in chapter 14, in verse 27, he says, it's not as the world gives. So here's peace, but it is not as the world gives peace. World would be the culture, the world system. The fallen world. How would they give peace? Well, they'll give it superficially. Because it'll be taken back at a moment's notice. Often with insincere intentions. Conditionally, conditionally in the sense that, well, you have peace as long as you do your part, and as soon as you fail, that peace is done and over. So it's temporal in that sense, and in many respects, artificial. That peace is, is given in that way because, and when we attempt to find certain degree of peace in the society, it's because the world doesn't consider the f- fundamental source of conflict in the world. It is sin. It is our fallen nature. It is the depravity of mankind. James would ask, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? James 4, 1. Most of us would think, well, that guy cut me off in traffic. (laughs) Or this person said something to me that was very offensive. Or did something to me that was very hurtful. Is it? James would put it this way. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And how about this for a preacher on Sunday morning? You adulterous people. It's an examination of your heart and who you really love. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All attempts at restoring peace, justice, achieving lasting conflict resolutions, if you will, from a man-centered perspective have no chance to make it. They will all result in futility or failure. And that is why we preach Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of sins, to change the very heart and very mind of man. And then to continually renew that man in his mind, who is made alive in Christ. Christ doesn't give peace in the way that the world might give peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. And it is because he grants it, then indeed we can 
let not our hearts be troubled, and neither let it be afraid. Christ has promised to give his peace to his people. The second gift that he has given, of course, is verse 28 and that and following, 28 and 29, and that is because of his perfection, which he also gives as a gift to his people. Okay, so I understand this peace thing. How about this perfection that I'm talking about? He said, well, you, verse 28, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. He knows his statement and what he's been telling them is going to bring a certain amount of despondency to his disciples. He already explained to him, as I have, that he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to function in the same way that Christ has functioned. But beyond that, he calls his disciples to increase in their joy, in their love, and their faith. All of these, by the way, are, are said to be the fruit or the result of the Holy Spirit that they would indeed abound in. Notice in verse 28, he talks about their love. And, and if your love was abounding then what would happen? You, your joy would increase. You would have rejoiced, verse 28, because I'm going to the Father. And I'm making these statements for what purpose? To them, right then. So that their faith would increase. So when it does take place, verse 29, they would believe. Why should they abound? And how will they abound? His statement here, and it can be difficult at first glance. It says, because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. At first glance, you might think, well, does this say something about his being? And the answer would be no. This is not talking about the ontological greatness of the Father in compared with the Son. And in our own text, you can see indications of that. Look at verse 9 of chapter 14. Jesus is of the same essence. The Spirit is of the same essence. That is the, the being of God. The essence of God consists in three equal, co-eternal beings, or should I say, persons. So if you would say, I have the Son, it is to say you have the Father, and if you say, I have the Spirit, it is to say that you have the Son. Notice verse 9. That's what Jesus is teaching and explaining to his disciples who say, I want to see the Father. And Jesus' response, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? To say you have the Son is to say you have the Father. To say you have the Spirit is to say you have the Son. It, it isn't that they're saying, they're not suggesting that they're the same person at all, but they're the same essence or being. So this greater than, he's already taught them about the triune nature of God. The Father isn't greater in, in that sense. And as Arius the heretic and those that would follow in his steps, even this day, would try to assert something like that. Unfortunately, bad theology like that seems to linger. That's not taught 
in this text at all, and the immediate context should tell us that. He's not also talking about a functional greatness, if you will. The Father is greater. It is true there are differences in the functions of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They function in different ways. Jesus said he explains the Father. That is, he would bring us to the Father. And it is the Holy Spirit, we'll find out in a later chapter, who speaks of Christ. That is, he, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to Christ, who brings us to the Father. It is the Father who decreed the atonement of Christ. It is Christ who accomplished it, and it is the Holy Spirit who would apply the benefits of that atonement. So, economically, they function in different ways. Jesus would say in our text here, in verse 31, I do as the Father commanded me. This is the decreed will of the Father, who Jesus perfectly fulfills. They're in harmony, both in heaven and in earth. This functional role of the triune God doesn't change, whether it's eternity past or a present day. So for him to go then to the Father, because he's greater, isn't talking about their function. It isn't talking about their being. So what is this that Christ is talking about in greater? I'd argue from our text that what happens is it is the exaltation of Christ. And for that, his saints, even now, should increase in their love, their joy, and their faith. That is the result of recognizing the, what I would call the perfection of Christ. You're in John, flip over to chapter 17. And here, as Jesus finishes out this section, he explains that very thing. He asked for the Father in verse 5, John 17, 5, to glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is speaking of the exaltation of Christ, or I would call it the perfection of Christ, the completion in that sense to where his glory was set aside, the fullness of it, veiled in flesh, if you will, incarnate deity. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going away, I'm going to the Father in order that the fullness of my glory would be on display. And for that, his disciples then should abound in great love, Great joy and great faith. I'll have you turn to two sections. I have time. First is Philippians 2, just so that um, you could root this theology in Scripture. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Here Paul is explaining this theological concept of Christ in reference to calling believers to have humility because Christ demonstrated it. In verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, though he, he was in the form of God, that is, he was in the perfect likeness 
of God because he is God. He's the essence of God. But he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is to be held on to that current position. This is prior to the incarnation. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. When you looked at Christ, he didn't run around with a halo over his head. He looked like a normal person. You wouldn't recognize him through his physical aspects in that way. He took on this form of servant, but he always retained the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form. It just wasn't as readily seen. The text goes on in verse 8, it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, this is the opposite of exaltation that Christ is now leaving to be with the Father. He took on human flesh. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. And now he is going to be exalted. Verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There's none greater. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is Christ right now. In an exalted state. And if you love Jesus Christ, it should warm your heart to great response of joy and faith in him. He's no longer in a humiliated state. This is one of the reasons I I despise the imagery of Christ so much. He doesn't recognize who he actually is. And I understand why some do it, but to put him on a cross and bear that about. You understand the position that Jesus is in right now? He is highly exalted, a name above every name. And at his name, every, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the sovereign God Almighty and Lord. And for those who have been changed on the inside, have a regenerate heart, our, our response is great love, joy, and faith. Christ's exaltation then who Jesus is right now dispels then this trouble and fear. It is a great gift he has given to his people because redemption now is accomplished. It's complete. He's ascended on high and is an exalted state. He has overcome and triumphed the world. He has come from the grave. He has risen. And ascended on high. Fulfilling all the promises that the purpose of God for those that love him, all of those things are for good. All of them. Doesn't look very good from our perspective. And it may be very troubling. 
And some of you are going through some great fearful things. And many of you will experience some things in days ahead. Trouble. And you don't know how things are going to work out. So you have great fear. But Christ is risen. And more than that, he has ascended on high. And he will fulfill his promises. And for that, you can have great joy. Increased love and faith. He is seated as the sovereign of the universe. And on high in this exalted state, here he is, Jesus Christ, interceding for his saints. And here again, I, I want you to turn to one other text. I'd rather you see it in the text of Scripture from the preacher of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. I think Hebrews is a sermon. And verse 12 of chapter 10 communicates this concept of Christ, what he has done and what he is doing even now. In verse 12 of chapter 10 in Hebrews, Christ offers for all time, note this, for all time a single sacrifice for sin. There's nothing you can do to atone for your sin. There is only one atonement. It is Christ. It is a singular atonement, and it is for all time. Should you have your sin covered, it will only be covered by Christ. And by the way, he has finished. <laughs> There's no work for you. All the work is done. And when he's done, he sat down, verse 12, at the right hand of God. The priests, this is imagery, didn't sit down. They were never finished. They came year after year after year because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't atone for sin. All it could do is point to something far greater, and it is Christ, who it is a single sacrifice, and then he sits down. And he's waiting right now, beloved. You say, what is he doing? He's waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I know how it's going to turn out. You want to know? Christ wins. Christ rules. Christ is the Lord. What are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? The Lord is at hand. By this single offering, he has perfected for all time those that are being sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart for him. And he's not going to lose any of it. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Remember, Christ prays the Father and sends the gift of the Holy Spirit so that he would remind so that he would teach. What would he teach? Well, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord. He's speaking of what we call the new covenant. I will put my, my laws in their heart and write them on their mind. And then he adds, I will remember their sin and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, he keeps his covenant, he keeps his promise. And by that, beloved, then, the challenge to the church is and stir up one another for love and good works, not neglecting our gathering together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus Christ has perfected the redemption of his saints. He is seated at the right hand of glory. There is no reason for your heart to be troubled or be afraid. You have the peace of Christ and the perfection of Christ in the sanctification of his saints. And finally, the third thing is indeed the protection of Christ. He promises disciples, John 14, verse 30, the protection of Christ. He says, I'm not, I, I will no longer talk much with you. Now, he's directly teaching his disciples. He's not going to directly teach in that manner. He's going to leave them. This is just another way of expressing that. But he won't leave them without his word. His disciples will become his sent ones, the apostles, who will receive the inspired words of Christ moved and borne along by the Holy Spirit who we will send. Gifts will be given to the church and that all who would follow, that they'll be able to also continue proclaiming the word through the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus directly is not going to talk. It's going to be better. It will be the work of the Holy Spirit who will bear these men along and they will record this book and you have it in your lap. And then the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer will illuminate the heart to where you can see and savor the word of Christ. It is a great promise of a protection through his word. Jesus speaks of his condition here. In verse 30 he says, speaking of the ruler of this world, he's coming. But note this, he has no claim on me. The, the ruler of this world is none other than Satan. Paul would describe him in Ephesians 2 as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the one that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That is, all of those outside of Christ. Christ is the obedient one. Notice if you're still in John uh, 14. Jesus describes himself that way. He does what? I do all the work that my Father has commanded me. He is the obedient Son. And those that are in Christ are said to be sons of, of, of obedience. Those that are outside of Christ are said to be sons of disobedience. Satan is working among them. That is how we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind is right at this moment. 
Satan is a ruler and a prince and the power of the air in the sense that he is the ultimate source of evil. The devil is the one who is behind all the treasonous actions against God. If you remember in chapter 8 of John, those that would reject Jesus, the Pharisees in particular, he would describe them, 844, as you are of your father, the devil. It is your, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Beloved, you're no match for the devil. Don't play games with the devil. He's been at his craft a long time. Don't even fiddle with these little play games of seance and whatever. Don't think you can stand against his temptation. He's a master of it, and he's perfected his craft. His desire for you, beloved, is to destroy you. Sift you as wheat is the illustration that Jesus would give to Simon. I'll read it for you, and I do want to look at a text in a minute, but for time I'll read this for you. Simon, if you remember, who did portray Jesus, told him, Jesus told him the reason is because Satan has demanded to have you, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. He's desired to have you so that he could destroy you, that is, sift you like wheat. But why, why did Simon Peter repent and return to Jesus Christ? I'll tell you why. Because I have prayed for you, Jesus said, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, that's a statement of repentance. Strengthen your brothers. Even in this awful time, it resulted in good, in strength for Peter, who would need great strength to resist the devil as well, to the fellow believers to know he that thinks he stand, take heed lest he should fall. Can I tell you there's only one reason that you haven't fallen away from Christ right now? That's because of his intercessory work for you, his prayer for you. He prayed for Peter. That's why Peter didn't fall utterly. It was temporarily. And then he returned. And in returning, he strengthens others. Say, don't, don't, don't fall for it. He said, well, that's good for Peter. How do you apply this to me? Because all of this section, beloved, is applied to you. Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you a follower of her, of him? Don't take my word for it. You're in John. This is where you don't have to move much. John chapter 17, and in the famous last words, I'm almost done. <laughs> Jesus got to go on a couple more chapters, so anyway, I, I really am. John 17, because you need to note where this is, so you note the connection here. 17, verse 15. Speaking directly towards the disciples who were there in his teaching, he says... To the Father, he's praying. 
He's praying for protection of his disciples. And he says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, verse 15, but that you keep them from the evil one. Who's that? Satan himself. Then they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's how you are sanctified. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Speaking of his apostles, the sent ones. And, there, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also might be sanctified in the truth. And here it is, verse 20, underline that. Remember where that is. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you believe the word? It is this apostolic word that has been given. It is the words of Christ that people will come and hear the word and be sanctified in the word. All who would believe. Beloved, you are no match for the devil, but the devil is no match for Jesus. Jesus would say, he has no claim on me because Jesus has obeyed God's will absolutely, perfectly, verse 31. He demonstrates his perfect love and perfect obedience. And he is the only one who ever loved God with all his heart, soul, and strength. The devil has no claim because there's nothing to accuse Jesus of, of either something he did or failed to do. There's no claim in Jesus because there's no trickery that can upset him. That's why two gospel writers record this temptation of Christ. They take him to the very end in the most very difficult situation, famished. And yet, Satan failed. There's no claim on him because there is nothing that the creature can do outside the sovereign will of of the creator God. With Jesus, one little word will fail, will fell Satan. Chapter 16, he will announce that he will send the Holy Spirit to bring about judgment because the ruler of this world is already judged. mission accomplished. So Jesus tells his disciples to rise from here (laughs) and let's go. But as you go, carry about with you the peace of Christ, the perfection in which he exists even now, and recognize the protection that he provides in prayer and intercessory work for the saints. And so therefore, We can believe Christ with great love, joy, and faith, and let not our hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let us pray. Father, I do pray through the power of the Spirit that you will grant that these words would ring true in our heart, and may we truly trust in Christ this day.